Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm joined by Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance team, and we're here on this podcast to help break out and explain some of the ongoing discussions relating to the Republican effort to repeal and replace Obamacare, or the ACA. Um, we like to mix in a little bit of fact, history, and legal background, and we think it's a lot of fun and hope you enjoy it as well. Today, we are going to focus on the policy debate surrounding pre-existing conditions and exclusions, and we're going to look at it from a couple different perspectives. But to start with, Suzanne, this is primarily an issue that comes up in the individual market, and our audience is primarily employer groups. So why are we even talking about this on this podcast? Well, that's a great question, Chase. One is because it's been so prominent in the news. Um, but secondly, really, if you think of the entire payer system as being as a single ecosystem, if you if one side gets imbalanced, so if the individual marketplace or individual uh, market gets in, uh, is implodes, it could affect the employer-sponsored market as well. Um, in addition, a lot of our our listeners will have uh, family members or others that are in that individual market and could be affected by this as well. So it's an important discussion regardless of where you are in this marketplace. Right. And so that ecosystem includes the individual market, the group market, and Medicaid as well. And so lots of different players when we're talking about this discussion, I guess, overall in health reform, there's just so many different players. But let's start with the perspective of the insurance carrier. What's the background there as that for, for insurance carriers as it relates to pre-existing conditions and exclusions? Well, if you think prior to the ACA, uh, generally there was a voluntary individual insurance market, meaning that individuals weren't required to buy insurance. And so when they did buy insurance, the carriers needed some way of uh, taking in fewer premiums or not taking in too few of premiums to cover the claims costs that they would have to pay out. So uh, the classic form of this is when an individual would wait until he's sick to get insurance. He's heading into, he's in the, he's in the ambulance, he's going into the hospital and suddenly wants to buy insurance. Obviously, an, a, an insurer needs to be able to cover those claims costs, so they need to be able to take in sufficient premiums um, to do so. And so if, if an insurer is required to provide coverage to a sick person without taking into account what those medical costs would be when they're calculating their premium rates, that makes the expense of uh, premiums increase for everybody because they do in some way have to take that into account. Otherwise, they would ultimately be run out of business if they didn't have a, a method to protect themselves against, um, again, bringing in too few, too little revenue to cover their expenses. So this, this entire issue is referred to generally as adverse selection, um, not wanting to have an imbalance in the risk pool with only those individuals who need the insurance at that time. Okay. We are definitely familiar with the term adverse selection. We've heard that a lot lately. So thank you for explaining a little bit more about that. Um, is that part of the reason why the ACA brought into play this individual mandate, this requirement that every U.S. citizen have health insurance coverage? Well, yes. I mean, if you think of the one way to drive down health insurance costs is you have enough healthy people in the risk pool paying premiums to cover the, the cost of those who are sick. If the premiums become too high, or as we saw under the ACA in many of the marketplaces, you, you saw um, high deductible health plans, so the deductibles and the cost sharing became too great, then a rational, healthy individual would choose to avoid buying insurance and choose instead to pay just out of pocket for their medical expenses, assuming that they would be um, low. Well, this creates a, a sort of death spiral. 
because when you have healthy individuals staying out of the game and foregoing insurance, then you only have the sicker people that are remaining in, and that will rise, uh, increase the cost for everyone. So this, and again, it, 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 by death spiral, I mean, as the prices go up, you start to see people fall out of that risk pool. And it just ends up being at a point where it ultimately is too, too expensive for anyone to buy the coverage, or it's not viable for the carriers to maintain um, that coverage. So that's what we're starting to see in the individual marketplace. The individual mandate wasn't set at a point where it would drive enough healthy people into the game. So the marketplaces were not were not uh, could not design their products in a way that was attractive enough. They did not get enough healthy people into the game, and so they were left with less healthy people, which caused their prices to go up, their products to change, so that there was more cost sharing. And again, it just ultimately became um, a, a situation where carriers had to pull out. Right. So for lots of different reasons there, perhaps the individual mandate didn't or hasn't worked quite as intended. How did the individual mandate or that idea of forcing people to buy coverage, how did that ever come into play? Is there some history behind there? Well, it's it's certainly been talked about for many years. It goes back as far as 50 years ago in December of 1963. There was a Stanford economist, Kenneth Arrow, that published a paper in the American Economic Review that was titled Uncertainty and the Welfare Economics of Medical Care. And he looked at really the issue that we should be focused on when we're talking about health reform. It's the cost of health care um, and, and then what the distortion of that does to health care insurance. So one being he listed five principles in the distortions of the market, if we want to think of medical care as being a marketplace. One is that their need for health care is entirely unpredictable. So it's not like food or clothing where those expenses are very predictable. Health care needs are entirely unpredictable. Secondly, you've got physicians who it's, they must have a license in order to practice. And in order to get that license, it requires years of training. And so, of course, phys physicians want to be compensated for that training. You have this concept of trust and delegation. So when you go in and you, there's a doctor-patient relationship, the patient has to trust that the doctor or the surgeon knows what they're doing. And they rely upon that person for making very important decisions about their care. There's also a supply condition. So doctors know obviously far more than patients, although that's changing with everybody looking up their medical issues on the internet. But the consumer of medical services at a, at a relatively disadvantage to the seller being the physician who's recommending certain services. And then you have this pricing issue of non-transparency, and you'll start to see a lot of discussion around that. Um, but the idea is that the patients don't see the bill until after they've received this non-refundable service. Um, they're not able to shop around. They don't know what the costs are. And so, therefore, there's this distortion in the marketplace of medical care. And so the argument was then made that the only solution to all of these pricing problems was to force everybody to buy the same basic coverage of health insurance. Okay. So that is a great description of how health care reform differs from other uh, situations where we, we are consumers and uh, Arrow's suggestion there to have this sort of individual mandate, well, well, at least get everybody in the same pool, buying the same coverage. The ACA attempted that with the individual mandate, didn't quite work out as maybe as well as they had hoped. So what's different under the AHCA or the, the American Healthcare Act that's been passed by the House now? How does this differ from what the ACA was trying to do, what Arrow was suggesting so the, the GOP proposal is we're going to eliminate the individual mandate, but instead we still have to look for and account for this adverse selection issue. 
So the assumption is that if you forego having insurance and then suddenly you want to buy insurance, you likely have a medical need that for that coverage. That may not always be the truth, but that's the assumption that's in play. And so what the AHCA did was to enforce what's called a continuous coverage requirement, that if you forego maintaining continuous coverage, you can then be um, you can then receive an increase in your premium cost of up to 30% if you're buying coverage in the individual market. So um, secondly, in the latest uh, amendment that was uh, added to the AHCA in order to get it past the, the Freedom Caucus, um, they allowed for the states to submit for a waiver from the pre-existing condition exclusion and allow them actually to do medical underwriting. Now, the exclusion, I should clarify, is still in place. A carrier cannot exclude someone with a pre-existing condition. But if a state has actually received a waiver, they can do medical underwriting, meaning they can price their product based on an individual's health status if the individual has gone with this gap in coverage for more than 63 days. Again, the assumption is if you've gone with a gap in coverage and you're now buying insurance, it's likely that you need it. Therefore, that's a red flag for the insurer who's going to pick you up and price their product according to what your health status looks like. So that's a really important point you just made, Suzanne, because a lot of what we've heard a lot in the press the last week or so since the AHCA has passed is this idea that the, the government is going to be taking away or carriers are going to be taking away my coverage for certain uh, benefits, um, including maternity care and other cancer treatment. But if I'm already covered by a plan and I um, continue under that plan, or if I leave my employer and don't have a gap in coverage. I elect COBRA or buy an individual plan within 63 days. Um, I'm not going to be excluded. I'm not going to lose coverage for that or be denied coverage for any of those pre-existing conditions. That is correct. And that is a, a, a big misnomer that's been played out in the press. Right. So how do we deal with people who have pre-existing conditions and who do have these gaps in coverage, um, this, this high, these high-risk individuals? Well, I mean, what you're hearing for, you know, is, as the, I guess the media has really focused on this issue, you're starting to hear more and more people ask for a nationalized system. Um, in our view, at most, it, it may justify nationalizing some system for this very subset of individuals. The U.S., already has an insurance market that works fairly well for most U.S. citizens. So you've got Medicare, Medicaid taking care of the old and poor, and then you have a relatively free marketplace for health insurance for those really who are younger and healthier and those who are covered by a group health plan. So let's keep our free marketplace, um, our, our free market in place for these individuals and then apply some sort of government solution for this small subset of individuals who, one, are in the individual marketplace rather than in Medicare, Medicaid, or group health market, two, have a gap in coverage, and three, have high claims cost, potentially. Okay, so um, the GOP's House bill, the AHCA that we've been referring to, that requires continuous coverage in order for, some, uh, for individuals not to see an, a premium increase. So is that the solution, or I guess another way to say that is, what are the cons of that continuous coverage requirement? Well, you, you're seeing some more of that discussion in the Senate, because so as the Senate has taken up the bill, they're clearly not happy with the GOP's approach, and you can hear, certainly in the media, that many other people are not appreciative of that approach. And the problem is, is that um, while, again, you've got several, you know, the majority of Americans that are taken care of, 
you could have someone who leaves employer-sponsored coverage and goes without coverage for a period of time, whether it's by choice or necessity. They may then um, have a medical condition that arises and need to get insurance. And now they're in the individual marketplace and they're stuck with this issue. Um, they, they do have this gap in coverage. And we're at a place now, I think in our discussion uh, post-ACA, that most Amer Americans don't believe that um, it's acceptable for a fellow citizen who's generally tried to stay insured through their lives, has had something happen, and now finds themselves sick and unable to get insurance coverage. So I, I won't even get into the point right now of um, EMTALA, which is our federal law that says that hospitals must treat those with emergency conditions, because I think most people can point to some type of chronic condition that, that may arise that wouldn't necessarily be covered under EMTALA and may not have, um, so a, a person may not receive the type of services that they would want without having insurance coverage. Right, so lots of complexities there, lots of, uh, clearly some arguments against this continuous coverage requirement that will be part of the debate in the Senate, as you said. What, what are some other solutions for dealing with this uh, group of sick individuals? Well, I think what we're going to hear more of, and there's pros and cons, and there, there will be a lot of discussion around the viability of this solution, but it's high-risk pools. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, in the past, there were many states that had high-risk pools that were adequately not adequately funded, and so we saw many of them um, not remain viable. And so the, there's, if you think of a high-risk pool, it's primarily this policy mechanism of trying to bridge the gap between the high cost of providing insurance to patients that have predictable expenses that are that are predictably high expenses, and by predictably, I mean we know that at least they're going to be high. We may not know what they are, but they're in a high-risk category. Right. And then having a comparatively low premium that a person can afford. So if we just throw them into the individual marketplace and they are able to be medically underwritten and they have these, these pre-existing conditions, the carriers could rate them at a price that would potentially be exorbitant so the individual wouldn't be able to afford it. So these high risk pools are there to bridge that gap. Everyone in the risk pool, by definition, they'd have a high risk profile, um, would have average claims costs that are going to be high. So the pool itself has to be designed to have funding that goes beyond this uh, capped uh, premium cost, and that funding must be subsidized from a variety of sources. It could be federal government, it could be state funds, it could also be from the private payer marketplace. In theory, um, the pools would not only help those people that have those pre-existing conditions, but it would help the rest of the marketplace as well. And this is because the carriers would not be required to cover these sick individuals at low premium cost. And so when they're doing their pricing modules or their pricing models, um, the premiums could go down for everyone because they're able to exclude some of this risk from their pricing models. And so once you start to see premiums go down, you'll start to attract more healthy people into insurance. If the prices get to a point where it's attractive for a healthy individual to say, hey, I should might as well have insurance coverage in case there is some type of claim that I need covered versus foregoing and doing it, uh, paying for it out of pocket, that's when we're getting to a good place in the free market system. Um, you have enough low-risk customers in, you're expanding the pool of premium payers, and it's a very healthy marketplace at that point. Okay, so trying to address all those different perspectives that we've talked about, how do we help the carrier be able to handle the increased risk associated with those sick individuals, but also attracting individuals and healthy people in, back into these uh, risk pools for the carriers? There's some out there, though, Suzanne, who think risk pools are not very viable. It's not a great option. So 
what makes this a different discussion today? Why is this on the table and, and being taken seriously? Well, for one, um, I don't want to presume that in our short 15 minutes we're going to resolve this very complicated <laughs> issue because we certainly can't. And, and there's great minds that are at work in trying to design programs that would be viable. The pool's main shortcomings in every instance in the past has been this large mismatch between the number of people who need the, to be covered by the high-risk pool and the amount of money that was there to subsidize it. So there wasn't sufficient um, funding in the past. So certainly um, you've got to take into account some method of, of still handling adverse selection. We still don't want the pool just to be unended for anyone needing a high claims cost covered to just get uh, fun, you know, coverage at that point. You also don't want some open-ended entitlement program run through the federal government like Medicaid, where as, as individuals need it, there's this unending un, un um, funding uh, source that just continues to push money into that situation. So they've got to still have some type of parameters within the system. Um, one suggestion is, you know, make sure that there is a generous but fixed budget at the federal level so that there's an annual appropriation made to help fund the states. In the past, again, the states did not receive sufficient funding. Still require the states to have some skin in the game. And then you have a design in which insurers are able to offload some high-risk claimants into the system or individuals can certainly apply themselves if they're not able to, if they're in a state that um, does medical underwriting and they're not able to get, get coverage at a sufficient cost point. Um, but the idea of having a, a carrier being able to offload some into this system would be that you possibly have a, the state would have a third party who would make decisions regarding eligibility into this risk pool. The carriers could submit an application in a, of sorts for an individual um, the third party would make their eligibility decisions based on pre-approved criteria. Um, and what we would find then is if a carrier was submitting applications that were sufficient, um, then that those individuals would indeed be pulled off of the risk pool. But if they continued to try to submit applications for individuals that really may have been high risk but not truly high claims, then the carrier would be penalized in some manner. So they would try to avoid the issue of patient dumping into the system, and if you had a carrier that was doing it too often, they would then be penalized otherwise. Again, the thought is that the carriers would maintain coverage for individuals that may be high risk to some extent but not hit that threshold, and they would cap, um, they would be forced to cap the premium cost for those individuals. So you could still have individuals with high risk and high claims, some being covered in the standard private insurer marketplace and some being covered by these high-risk pools. Um, but it, in every instance, the, the individual would have their premium cost capped and the funding mechanism would either be taken care of by a federal state um, funding or by the private marketplace. So it's, it's a complicated scenario. They've got to come up with some method of being able to have that funding be sufficiently spread across federal, state, private marketplace but still have a method where those individuals can afford some, some type of coverage. Wow. So probably the most complicated topic we've tackled so far on this podcast, despite many who thought healthcare reform was relatively simple, it's not. And this is a difficult, um, difficult issue to explain and find solutions for. So what do, we, what do we see as the future here? What's your prognosis? Any ideas on what the Senate will do? 
Wow, that's a great question. I, I think the Senate will have some form of, of high-risk pool. I think that they will probably have some form of mandated coverage. Possibly um, they're looking at even having basic coverage, uh, some type of catastrophic coverage required for every individual and even taking potentially some of the funding for that out of, out of taxes um, and individuals' taxes, so making people pay for that in some form, which gets back to this whole... It's interesting because the GOP obviously didn't want the individual mandate, and, and in a sense that would create something very similar. So none of this is easy. It's very complex. Um, you move one lever on one side and it affects things on another side. We certainly aren't going to tackle and resolve these issues in a 15-minute podcast, mm -hmm. but at least what we wanted to do was raise the issue, give some idea of what some of the parameters and issues were surrounding um, pre-existing conditions and, and how to handle it, and hopefully we'll have many more discussions on, on the, and see effective solutions going forward. Right. Thanks so much, Suzanne, for explaining that for us. It will be very interesting to see how this proceeds in the Senate. Uh, but for now, that's uh, a wrap on what we're going to talk about today. All right, that's a wrap. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you all next time.